There are all kinds of ways to interpret Shakespeare to really know what he meant. But let's be honest. Doesn't it sometimes seem like there are some ways that are just considered a little bit more right than others? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Emma Smith is an eminent Shakespeare scholar. She's steeped in the world of Shakespeare studies. And a while back, it dawned on her. These quote-unquote right ways of experiencing or interpreting Shakespeare, they might actually be a problem. Professor Smith worried about this a lot. And then she decided to do something about it. She presented a series of lectures, one each, on 20 of Shakespeare's plays, all of them designed with a message. Look, your interpretation of what's happening on stage, your idea of what this passage or that passage means, your interpretation is right. And maybe one of those other ones is right too. In fact, according to Professor Smith, Shakespeare wrote these plays in a style that was actually designed to be open to interpretation. After delivering these lectures, Professor Smith decided to publish them in a book, a book that's coming out in the United States as we record this. The book's called This is Shakespeare. And Professor Smith, who teaches at Oxford, came in recently to talk with us about it. We call this podcast, That's Not My Meaning. Emma Smith is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Emma, your thesis that Shakespeare's broad appeal across cultures and centuries hangs on a concept with a wonderful made-up word. Maybe not so made-up, but you call it gappiness. What is gappiness? Well, gappiness is just all the breathing space that there is in Shakespeare, all the things that we don't know, the space there is for our creativity. So I'm trying to say these plays are really incomplete, and the thing that they need to complete them is us and our sort of inventiveness, our world, our experience. So those gaps are not a negative. In fact, they're a really enabling positive. Well, I love this because right off the bat, you're addressing this issue that a lot of people feel with Shakespeare, which is that I'm shut out. I don't know enough or this isn't for me. Uh, It's a thing complete unto itself and the doors are locked. But just before we get into this deeper, maybe you could give us just quick examples of what you mean by these gaps or these windows into Shakespeare that leave it incomplete that we can fill. Yeah, and some of those gaps are to do with uh, what theatre is like as a medium, particularly when we're reading effectively play scripts. There's a whole load of stuff we don't know. We don't get any narration. We don't get what we would get in a novel. Just on the most basic level, we don't know what characters look like. We very rarely know how old characters are. Um, There's lots of elements of plot that we are not fully given. Sometimes things are described to us, but they're not shown. So there's a question mark about how uh, how they should be interpreted. Lots of actions in Shakespeare's plays are not scripted or there aren't stage directions telling us. And there are also some sort of more historical gaps that I think inform the way Shakespeare writes, a gap between an older uh, form of understanding the world and some new things that are coming in. And that sense of being astride two worldviews, that's particular to 
perhaps the end of the 16th century, but it's actually been a, a situation that we've often felt we're in uh, and that has echoed, I think, in, in later ages too. We ran through some categories of gaps. Can you give us some specific gaps in specific plays? Sure. So one of the examples of a thing that we don't see and that so we don't know how to interpret it comes right at the beginning of Julius Caesar. Off stage, we can hear a crowd cheering and they're cheering because Julius Caesar has been offered the crown and we hear that he's rejected it. The whole play turns on whether Caesar uh, really means to reject the crown or whether he has ambitions to be a king. But because we don't ever see that, we can't make up our minds and the whole question of what what Caesar's uh, ambitions might be, whether it's explicable or even justifiable for the conspirators to assassinate him. That gap at the beginning of the play structures the whole thing. Or there's another kind of example which comes from this sense of having a foot in two worlds. And one of the questions that really captivates me about Macbeth is the question of blame. Mm. And Shakespeare's really stacked up the blame here. The witches seem to have a role to play. Uh, Lady Macbeth seems to have a role to play. Macbeth, of course, has got his own agency. And I think this plays out some real questions that are never answered. Uh, Why things happen? That's a big philosophical question, which is moving from a religious explanation to a more human explanation, kind of about the time Shakespeare's writing. And the play encodes some of those contradictions, internal contradictions in thinking. I want to get into the specifics of the plays that you analyze. But as you speak, I'm thinking, isn't this just what artists or or genius artists do. They're not black and white. They're multi-minded. They're open-minded. They they give you a lot to think about at, at once and multifarious points of view. I think that's true to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, the, you know, the definition of a classic is a thing that's not told us everything it has to tell us yet. And in some ways, this is the definition of, of drama, that it's uh, uh, made up of all different senses and we're not getting all of those in the script. But I think there is something very specific about Shakespeare. It's partly intrinsic to the way that he writes and that he conceives his plays. Much less is fixed, much less is tied up at the end than we've tended to assume. And it's also been amplified, if you like, by this long history we've got of engaging with Shakespeare at different times and in different places. So we've kind of hollowed out those gaps and made more space, I think, for us to interpret in different ways. Well, you do talk about uh, Shakespeare posing questions and unsettling certainties, presenting them, and and he's challenging orthodoxies. I wonder if that comes from Shakespeare's schooling, uh, since children were taught rhetoric, and and to argue both sides of whatever they were arguing. I think that training in the in the Elizabethan schoolroom, arguing both sides in utramque partem. I think that was a brilliant sort of if inadvertent training for uh, for playwrights, because what you're made to do is to make different points of view as valid as you can. And one of the effects of that, of course, and Shakespeare's biographers have been struggling with this for 400 years, is that Shakespeare's own views really recede. It's very hard to deduce those, uh, and particularly in a play, say like Richard. The second, which has dramatizes this hugely important political issue of a, ch- a change in rulers and leaves it really unclear which side we're supposed to be on. And were other playwrights of the time doing that, you know, presenting their work by, say, you know, on the one hand and on the other hand? Or, or was there a didactic theater at that time? 
I think there is more didactic theatre uh, in the hands of other playwrights and more of a sense that the counter view is always posed by a negative character. So you might still get the view and the counter view, but you're still pretty clear where your sympathy should be. And Shakespeare doesn't really adhere to that. Okay, well, let's dig into some of these big gaps or question marks. And, and let's start with Taming of the Shrew, because that's where you start with your book. Could you please read the first two paragraphs of that chapter for us? Because it's just so wonderful how you set up the dichotomies. Uh, so from the start of the chapter? Yes, from, from the start the, of the start chapter. Of the, yeah. The Taming of the Shrew is one of Shakespeare's earliest plays and one of his most controversial. Everything from the name of its heroine to its ideology of gender relations is contested, to the extent that it's impossible even to begin with a neutral synopsis of the play. Here's why it's impossible. The Taming of the Shrew centres on the courtships of the two daughters of the Paduan merchant Baptista, Catherine and Bianca. The elder, Catherine, is apparently the shrew of the title, a woman who, depending on how you look at it, is feisty and independent, lonely and misunderstood, or strident and antisocial. Her father, who, depending on how you look at it, is either a worried widower or a patriarchal tyrant, has decreed that Bianca, who, depending on how you look at it, is either beautiful, gentle and agreeable, or exactly the kind of annoyingly insipid, simpering arm candy who you, like her sister, would want to slap, cannot marry until her older sister gets hitched. The stage is set for the entrance of Petruchio, who, depending on how you look at it, is a quirky and an orthodox guy who knows his own mind and wants a woman who knows hers, or a psychopathic bounty hunter with sadistic and misogynistic tendencies. So, Catherine and Petruchio are paired off against Catherine's will in a relationship which, depending on how you look at it, is crackling with mutual sexual tension along with a touch of shared S&M domination fantasy, or is cynical, loveless, and enforced by a violently patriarchal society. He treats her in a way <laughs> I'm sorry, which... I'm sorry. <laughs> when you get to the domination part, you're so dry in the reading. It's wonderful. <laughs> he treats her in a way which, depending on how you look at it, uses distinctly unfunny torture techniques, including sleep deprivation, brainwashing, and starvation to bend her to his will, or is a zany courtship showing their mutual determination not to yield as an underlying equality beneath their revolutionary union. So... At the end of the play, Catherine is, depending on how you look at it, broken-spirited, parroting patriarchal ideology and utterly submissive, offering to put her hand under her husband's foot, or, ironically and unabashedly vocal, preaching the interdependence of husband and wife to earn herself half of a fat wager placed by her husband. <laughs> that is so wonderful. I, I So I confession here. I told my husband about your book, and I gave the example of Gappiness and Timmy the Shrew. And before I gave the examples in specifics, he said, what do you mean? It's it's there are no dichotomies in Taming of the Shrew. It's absolutely clear to me <laughs> who she is and who, who the other characters are. And then I read him your first two paragraphs. And um, comedy, hilarity ensued. Um, <laughs> marital discord ensued. Um, so I never thought of the play either, really, as so open-ended. But, you know, I read that and it makes me think, oh, my gosh, there there must be more gaps in this play than any of the plays. And and remind us, Shrew is also a play within a play, which that calls everything even more into question. 
That's right. There's an opening scene called an induction with some completely separate characters, a, a sort of lowlife tinker called Christopher Sly, who is drunken and picked up as a joke by some upper class people who play a trick on him that he is really a lord who has been very ill and they perform a play within a play for him and that play is the play of Catherine and Petruchio and depending as I say depending on how you look at it that either means that we're supposed to take it all with a pinch of salt that this is the kind of play that you would put on for a for a drunken fool and when Christopher Sly says in one version of the play at the end I'll go and tame my wife too we're supposed to think, yeah, well, you know, only good a fool. Good luck. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, it, oh, yeah, only a fool would think that. Uh, or whether th- this is a, a sort of framing device which amplifies the play's patriarchal message. Aren't all Shakespeare's characters like this, though? I mean, what makes Shrew stand out to you in this way? Um, the clarity of the question, which I focus around Catherine's last speech, So uh, Petruchio makes a bet that his wife is so tame that she will come whenever he calls. And his friends say, yeah, right, of course she will. Uh, They they lay the bet. Petruchio sends for Catherine and she immediately does come. And she also delivers the longest speech in the play, the longest speech by a long chalk. I mean, comedies don't have long speeches. That's one of their features. People don't deliver themselves of great oratory. There's more back and forth. But Catherine gives this great long speech, and it's about how women should submit to their husbands. It's already a sort of ironic moment. On the one hand, everything she says is about women's inferiority to men and how they ought to accept that. On the other hand, she is talking, you know, to the exclusion of everybody else. And through repetition of this point, she seems to make it, you know, sort of more uh, ironic somehow. A little bit like Brutus is an honourable man in Julius Caesar, where by the end of it, you think Brutus is most certainly not an honourable man. But what that comes to at the end of Catherine's final speech is that she says, you should be willing to put your hand under your husband's foot. And that's what I'm willing to do. I always no... took it as just as you say, pretty much hyperbole. That mm. we're she is she just she doth protest too much. So is she just trying to win the bet? Well, I think that's certainly one possibility, isn't it? This is a setup in some way uh, between them, or she knows what she has to do. This is a performance rather than um, something that she really believes. But there have been much harsher interpretations where this formerly very feisty and independent woman really is broken by by the end of the play. So I think there are lots of different ways to take it. One of the things I was interested in, in looking at different editions of Temu of the Shrew, and people may want to just have a look at this in their own copy of Shakespeare. Uh, after this speech, Petruchio says, why, there's a wench. And then in the play's most famous line, come on and kiss me, Kate. And again, there's no stage direction. Most Most editors will say, uh, they kiss, or sometimes he kisses her, which we all know is a slightly different, suggests something slightly different. Uh, but there's, you know, it, it may be that they don't. It may be that that doesn't happen and we don't get the happy ending. It's not possible to have that uh, as a result of what's gone before. So how did how did people in Shakespeare's time think of it? And, and there is this tendency now to think, oh, you know, it's Me Too uh, generation now. We're more evolved than they were. This is horrific. Well, uh, that's why we think this behavior is, is reprehensible. But you do talk about Fletcher, who wrote a sequel to The Taming of the Shrew. 
Yeah, I mean, what's so great about Fletcher's sequel to it, which is called The Tamer Tamed, is that it precisely skewers that point that, that it's because we have different concerns or we're in a different sort of social order from Shakespeare's that we have problems where there were no problems before. Uh, nobody would have thought about this until feminism or something. But that doesn't seem to be true. So Fletcher writes a play about 15 years after The Taming of the Shrew with some of the same characters. And the setup is that Catherine has died and so Petruchio is a widower who's just about to remarry. Brilliantly, Petruchio's new wife says she is going to teach him a lesson. She says, you have been known as a wife breaker. Now you have a wife will break you. But on the other hand, the men in Fletcher's play all recall Catherine, Petruchio's first wife, with sort of fear and, and trembling. And there's a great line in it about Petruchio still has nightmares about her uh, and that she will, she's she's going to get up and walk around the bedroom and put on his breeches, you know, as an absolute literalization <laughs> that you know who wears <laughs> the breeches in this uh, in this relationship. So what's interesting is that the women in Fletcher's play seem to think uh, that Petruchio needs to learn his lesson, and the men seem to feel Catherine, you know, ran him a dance. Uh, so there's there's a kind of there's a, there's a sort of contradiction. Uh, openness about about the reception of the play. At the end, Fletcher says, "Well, it's not really right for men or women to have the upper hand, is it? We should we should try and for something a bit more mutual." And everybody seems to agree that that's a a good way round. So, to sum up this part of the conversation about Taming of the Shrew, is there some kind of formula or specific to this play about the process of the gaps that Shakespeare writes into it? I think this early play and this sort of very controversial play really exemplifies the openness to interpretation that I think is there in all of Shakespeare's plays. I think it gives us the template for that. Uh, And it gives us it in a very clear way because the question of the, the proper relations between men and women has continued to be a source of debate and and controversy ever since. So it's one of the plays where we can see the openness to different kinds of interpretations most clearly. Well, your discussion of Twelfth Night takes a, a very different tack. And we've been talking about Catherine, the main character, but in that chapter, instead of focusing on the main characters, you zero in on this minor character of Antonio, and you suggest that his relationship with Sebastian is the important overlooked element of the play. First, just remind everybody, Twelfth Night, you know, it's hard to keep track of all the names, what's going on, who's Antonio and Sebastian, and why hone in on Antonio? So the main action of Twelfth Night is a kind of love triangle between Viola, who has been shipwrecked uh, in Illyria. And of course, she is in a Shakespeare comedy. She's dressed herself as a man. So she's called Cesario. She's in love with Orsino, who is her master. Um, But Orsino has sent her, thinking she's a man, to woo Olivia on his behalf, and Olivia has fallen in love with her. So I've got a lovely triangle there of kind of mistaken or um, in sort of standard romance terms, misdirected desire. And Sebastian is Viola's twin brother. He also seemed to have been drowned, but hasn't been. And he turns up too in Illyria, but they don't know that each other is still alive. And Sebastian is accompanied by a sailor friend called Antonio. And I was interested in them really largely because Antonio is 
a pointless character. There's no need for him at all because Sebastian's role in Twelfth Night is to be a male violer. He has to come in and sort out this threesome into two straight pairs. And uh, in order for that to work, he needs to be as little himself as possible and really just to be a sort of duplicate violer, but of the correct uh, sex. And Antonio really spoils that because Antonio's intense friendship, intense relationship it's with Sebastian... It's a bromance, right? It, it could be a bromance. Uh, it could just be a <laughs> On romance. On yeah. Uh, yeah, a- uh, absolutely. And one of the things I try and explore is the terms in which male, in which men might refer to each other, whether the strength of the of, of what Antonio says about Sebastian, uh, I do adore thee so, is, is one of the lines, I do adore thee so. And I try and work out whether adore is a romantic word or whether it buys into a, the very high status that male-male friendships had uh, in this period of much higher status than marriage, that, that your soulmate, if you were an educated man, would probably be another educated man, uh, not your wife. Oh, okay, because I was going to ask you, how did the audience in Shakespeare's day understand, or if they understand, how did they understand same-sex attraction, or what would we call gender fluidity, or, or all of the things that's going on that's hinted at in Twelfth Night? Well, it's a really, really interesting question. It feels as if the theatre is able to do things, perhaps as the theatre often is, is able to do things that are not possible uh, in in everyday life, but that theatre does seem to play with gender. The all-male acting companies may have built in a sort of frisson of, which, which we would now call queer, I guess, a kind of drag frisson or something like that. Uh, and certainly Twelfth Night is a play which it's really impossible to make straight. Hmm. It's full of same-sex desire of different sorts. And if you manage to sort of damp it down in one place... For example, by saying the reason Orsino is in love with his servant Cesario, who's really vile, dressed up, is that it's not a very convincing disguise and that really he's in love with the woman underneath. Uh, that doesn't quite make sense of why Olivia is also in love with that figure. So, you know, that the suggestion of same-sex desire pops up somewhere else in the play. I think Antonio is really the linchpin of, of all of that, actually. His relationship with Sebastian is perhaps the one truly self-sacrificing relationship in this play, which is full of narcissists. Uh, Antonio puts himself in danger for Sebastian and gets very little uh, recompense for it. But he, the important thing for me about the play is that he is there. And one of the things I try and think about is the practicalities of the theatre Shakespeare's writing for. Basically, actors mean money, and you try and make the most of the actors. You've got doubling up their parts, making sure that they do a proper afternoon's work. And it's hard to see Antonio just in that practical, theatrical way as other than very wasteful. That makes me think he's really important thematically. Hmm. And so where does the gappiness reside then? I mean, obviously, there's so many question marks in all of the word, in this many ways you, we understand this word adore or, or how many different types of love there is, there are. But um, you seem to be uh, highlighting the point that Twelfth Night, it's all, as comedies are, heading towards marriage. But in this play, those marriages... That, that happy ending really isn't possible. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I wonder whether 
sometimes we think of Twelfth Night as being Shakespeare's last comedy. So maybe maybe Twelfth Night is the last of the so-called kind of romantic comedies. And it seems to me to have come to an end with, with romantic comedy, that there are more important relationships at the end of Twelfth Night than heterosexual marriage. One is the reunion of the twins. And the other, I think, is these relationships we would now call gay or queer, these non-heterosexual relationships, which, which are very highly charged and emotional in the play and which are all around these rather compromised and hasty marriages that actually try to bring it all to a conclusion. Hmm. So measure for measure, which is, is right in the heart of a problem play in Shakespeare, then blows apart these conventions of comedy even more than, than Twelfth Night? And, and you say that Shakespeare borrows from his creative experience across different genres to explore the elastic notions of comedy in this play. So unpack that for us and what relation it bears to this thesis of yours about gappiness. I think Measure for Measure is a really, really fascinating and play with a real real ability to trouble us. So in certain ways, it's a very clear comedy. It's listed among the comedies in the first folio. It's heading towards marriages. It has disguise as part of its plot. Um, and, you know, in, in all those ways, it looks as if it's cut according to the sort of comic cloth. But on the other hand, uh, it's a deeply existential play about government and morality and uh, it takes place in the prison and the brothel, not in the green world. And I suppose one of the things I was really interested in was this is a play with another fabulous, really big gap or silence uh, at the end of Measure for Measure, the Duke who has been actively trying to plot and manage a, a situation and has kept his true identity from Isabella, who uh, is a novice nun, he proposes marriage to her, kind of out of the blue, but it is a comedy and we're coming to the end, so hey. And she doesn't reply and then he proposes again and she still doesn't reply. Uh, and it's a really wonderful example of a completely literal gap uh, that directors and, and actors need to think through and think, what's that gap going to mean? Uh, is it going to be a space for her to throw her arms around his neck? Uh, is it a space for her to go back to the convent? So I was, I was kind of interested in the way the Duke seems to me to really want to bring about a comedy at the end and really nobody else quite wants to go along with him. Well, talk about a pregnant silence. I mean, you, I've almost always seen this as horror a horror on a look of horror on the face of Isabella who has proven herself to have so much agency but measure for measure it's so brutal on the women that it it sets up to have agency as the play goes on it keeps drubbing Isabella and just draining her of her power I think that's right and I think that's one of the ways in which it really pushes at the comic envelope because it's absolutely clear that if you're a woman, if you're a woman actor, the, the kind of plays by Shakespeare you want to be in are actually comedies. Comedies are hospitable to women, they're usually organised around women's desires, women are allowed to be funny, they're allowed to sort of go on quests and work out what they want and the beginning, the first half of Measure for Measure complies with that in that Isabella has a, a a lot of stage time. She has some brilliantly clever argument with Angelo. And in the second half of the play, we see that power really waning and she comes to be stage managed by the Duke. 
You know, I'm thinking that what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, that some people don't find it easy to find a way into into Shakespeare. And throughout your book, uh, especially in the beginning, you acknowledge that. And I wonder if you put that down to Shakespeare just done badly in the theater or that our expectations in modern times are so different than those of audiences at the Globe, which we in some cases don't really know at all what it was like to be at the Globe, um, that it can feel tedious. I think Shakespeare can feel tedious. And I'm absolutely signed up to the idea that Shakespeare can come to life in the theatre. But I think the flip side of that is sometimes it can be really boring in the theatre. And I don't think that Shakespeare... I think Shakespeare's not good at Act 4. I think Act 4 is often very boring. And that's the time, usually I think around 9.30 in the theatre, where you're trying to just sneak a little look at your watch and think how much longer have we got to go. Uh, so I think it's good to acknowledge that because I think we can all feel that we failed a bit if we're not absolutely on the edge of our seats for every moment of Shakespeare. Well, you're talking about Act Four as the snooze time reminds me of uh, The Tempest and how Prospero is constantly saying, are you paying attention? Hey, yeah, pay attention up. now. Yeah. Is it, yeah. Do you think he's speaking to that Act Four or is he speaking straight to the, the groundlings having a picnic in the pit? Well, I think he's... Uh, in some ways, I think he expresses an anxiety, which must be Shakespeare's anxiety. Shakespeare in The Tempest has set himself a, tr a trick, I think, a dramatic trick, which is to write a play that takes place in real time. And in order to manage that, he has to have this big kind of flashback, but it has to be a big narrative explanation about how we got here. And so Act 1, Scene 2, which is full of talk about what happened 12 years ago, how they ended up there, there's an awful lot of important information. And I think Shakespeare is slightly worried that this is, he's gone against his own playwriting credo, which is really show, not tell. And this is an awful lot of telling. Well, in, in your chapter in, on The Tempest, you take aim at this idea that it's often referred to as Shakespeare's last play and that how significant that is and that Shakespeare, you can see Prospero as Shakespeare. Why, why take that route? I suppose one of the ways I wanted to get some gaps and some breathing space back into Shakespeare's plays was sometimes to just dismantle some of the things that we often repeat about particular plays, which I think can be a bit of a trap. So I have a go at whether Midsummer Night's Dream is suitable for children, and I, I say it's, it's really not. And here I have a go at The Tempest as a play about the philosophical artist figure uh, that's always been associated with Shakespeare. And I point out that that tends actually to overlook or underplay some of Prospero's very negative characteristics. It makes him into a wise and benign figure rather than a sort of weird control freak as he is actually in the play. Yeah, I always other, think yeah. he's such a cruel jerk. I always thought that was strange that we're supposed to equate Prospero with Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. I would probably think uh, not like Shakespeare very much. That's absolutely, <laughs> I completely agree. I, com I completely agree. And I, But I think that that association of Prospero and Shakespeare has kind of suppressed that maybe a little bit. If we get rid of that, we can see some of the other things that have come into view. I mean, the, the idea that The Tempest is uh, about the the, the travel to the new world and those kinds of things. I mean, they're really interesting ways to see the play. They have been for the last century or more, but they're still a little bit uh, pushed out by this biographical impulse. And just so I, I get it, what what is the secret sauce of gappiness in The Tempest? 
I guess what I was trying to think about in The Tempest was if we lift this restrictive framework, uh, the framework that says Prospero is a kind of Shakespeare, what kind of air does that get into the play and what, what gaps does that create? So I suppose I was trying to think about a way that our assumptions or a critical assumption can harden and restrict the fluidity and the openness of a play. And I was trying to sort of crack that a bit. As I read the book, I feel like you are speaking to an audience who wants a less dogmatic, less complete Shakespeare. Who who is that audience? Who who who's what need are you, are you meeting, or who are you speaking to when you, who were you speaking to when you were writing? So I suppose I drew from speaking with students at college and in high school, and theatre audiences, and library patrons and those kinds of groups. So not academics, not people who are studying this every day of their professional lives. But um, there's a a brilliant Amazon review of my book. I am absolutely vain enough to read Amazon reviews. And one of them says, this would be good if you're interested in Shakespeare, Um, which I thought that's probably fair enough. I, I don't see my audience as being people who are not at all interested in Shakespeare. But I do think that there are people who feel maybe not uh, comfortable, not confident in their own opinions, uh, a little bit that there's all kinds of stuff that they need to know that they don't know, maybe still going back to school in a sense that there's a right answer about these plays and that you've just got to try and uncover it. They're the people I hope might find something interesting in this book. Emma Smith, I have so enjoyed the book and talking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Dr. Emma Smith is professor of Shakespeare Studies, faculty of English, and a fellow of Hereford College, Oxford. Her new book, This is Shakespeare, was published in the United States by Pantheon, an imprint of Penguin Random House Books, in 2020. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, That's Not My Meaning, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Rich Woodhouse at Electric Breeze Audio Productions in Oxford, England. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, and I imagine you are, please do us a favor and leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.